You have to have a certain level of confidence in yourself. Sometimes that's right, sometimes that's wrong, but you've you got to back yourself, I suppose, and, and just explore what you want to explore, whether it's right or wrong. I, I need to get what's in my head out, and I don't care if it's wrong. <laughs> in fact, I think I learn more when it is wrong. When it's right, it's just right, and you, what's there to do with it? Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 110th episode, Diane Scott comes on to talk to me about her work and her recent paintings that are up at 30 Upstairs Gallery in Wellington, New Zealand. So we'll talk about that, a little bit about her transition from a sculptor to a painter and everything in between. So please stay tuned for that. And of course, please visit dianescott.net to see her work. If you're not familiar with Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog site. We have a variety of different artists that come on and discuss their artwork and their practice with me. I ask them all sorts of invasive questions about their personal histories, and you can check them all out on Studio Break. Once again, each of those posts have images of the artist's work, links to their websites, as well as links to the places that you can interact with Studio Break. Once again, you can like our Facebook page and get updates there. You can follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break. You can follow our Tumblr, studio-break.tumblr, so please do all of those. Of course, if you want, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and get updates every time there's a new episode, which is highly encouraged, so please do that. And during this time of year is our 2014 competition. It's always in May. Once again, this year, our juror, Richard Holland from the Bad at Sports podcast in Chicago. They have contributors everywhere and cover all sorts of contemporary art. So it's a great opportunity to get your work seen by Richard. And also, once again, we will be featuring nine artists, three from three different categories. That's BA, BFA, MA, MFA, and Professional. Each of those artists will be featured on Studio Break with an interview and and three lucky winners. One from each of those categories will be set up for a solo show. And we're working with three different spaces, Jan Brandt Gallery, the Peoria Art Guild, and Demo Project. So it's very exciting to get this work in real spaces. If you want more information, please go to studiobreak.com and check out our competition page. And, of course, if you have any questions, Please feel free to email me, and if you would do us a huge favor and share this opportunity, if you know any artists or especially any students that want to get their work out there, maybe get a solo show, please tell them to apply to this opportunity. All right, here is our interview with Diane. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. I'm really excited to be interview diane scott how are you this uh this morning for you i'm good thank you david thank you nice to be here with you and it's great that we got the scheduled i know there's a little bit of a time difference again you're currently in new zealand is that correct new zealand wednesday the 30th at nine twenty-six in the morning <laughs> again it's great to have you on and um you know i as i was just saying before you know become familiar with your work kind of almost like a mixtape kind of by word of mouth and, and just kind of seeing it here and there. So again, it's exciting to have you on and to learn about you. So um, why don't we just kind of dive into that? I typically kind of like to start at the beginning. So were you, 
Were you an active uh, art lover as a as a child? It's funny, isn't it? When does art stop? As a child, I always coloured in and drew, and it just it 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 wasn't considered art by me. It was just part of life, and I guess other people dropped that, and I just kept going. I think um, I became of art being art when I found a Henry Moore sculpture when I was in England at about nine years old. I ran at it and I ran inside it. And I didn't know what it was, but the whole experience of being inside this constructed object, I just remember the experience of that, and I didn't know what it was. And my parents shouted at me for being inside this sculpture, and I just didn't know why they didn't want to get in too. (laughs) It defined space. It defined from the inside looking out. I could see the light. It framed the sky. I could see texture. And I've never forgotten that experience, and I didn't know it was art. So if you don't know it's art, it's just an experience, and... So that was the beginning, I think, for me, that and colouring in. And I've just continued. I've never stopped. And whether I do it at a personal level before I went to art school, you know, through art classes and courses, and just gradually I've got more focused. And I'm not saying one's better than the other, having to having done five years of a BFA with fine art, on fine arts and honours and then a Master of Fine Arts with honours. It's just different but it's still art for me. Yeah. Sure. Sure. You know, we're talking a little bit about, you know, working with the hands and, and, you know, emphasis on, on the studio. I mean, were you always kind of working with your hands and exploring that way and in terms of material? Yeah, I think I'm always moving. I'm always touching. If I learn through touch, I learn through experience. I learn through making mistakes and all those things are exciting to me. I don't need to know where I'm going. I just need to find something uh, it's the journey, it's the it's the quest that excites me, uh, learning new things. And I wouldn't want to give the making of something to somebody else because I think when you do the making yourself, you understand the material and its limitations to an extent. You know how to take it to its very limits and you know how to make it hum, how, how to make that material sing and you understand it. And if even when I sculpt and I use tools, I learned that by using my hands I could feel the density of the rock or the sound of the rock and I could take my time and respect that material because sometimes the rock I used was 500 million years old and to come at it with a power tool seemed disrespectful. So, so learning to understand the material I think is a big part of of what I appreciate. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of being a sculptor, I, I know that, again, we were talking about this earlier what what exactly, I mean, what, was it involving? I mean, what what did you do? I went back to school as an adult student and to do bursary and what we call New Zealand School Sea Art. It's no longer called that. But I went back to do, you know, school and do art. And one of those courses was a sculpture course. And I learned, I got the toe part of a sculpture. It was a collaborative sculpture. And I really enjoyed the experience, but I wanted to do it by myself. And before long, I was on a committee that ran sculpture symposiums for 12 years in the local town of Matamata in the Waikato. That taught me a lot about organization and governance of the arts, but it also taught me just you pick up a mallet, you pick up a chisel, and you start making. It, it, it's, it's a lot of hard work, and you learn through the process. You, can't, you can get so much into your head, but you have to do it physically to, to get better, and it takes many years before... Um, it became automatic to me. And if I changed stone, I'd have to do a whole lot of learning again. I went from Olmaru stone, which is a local stone, and Hinuera stone, which is a local stone. 
and then to marble South Island stone. And each time I had to relearn how to use different tools and different ways of making. So that just happened over 20 years. And um, I moved to different areas, but I, wherever I go, I take usually about 12 ton of stone with me on a high ab. It's not the usual hobby that most people have. And um, my hands are really strong. You know, it's, it shows in your body, you have this learned memory in your hands that go up your arms and into your neck and your eyes. And to learn something, I just need to touch it to understand something. Um, one of my tutors was a man called Eric Flegg who studied with Henry Moore. And he taught me to close my eyes and run my hands along something because your eyes will fool you, but your hands won't. And that, that's something I found to be very true in sculpture anyway. In, in sculpture, thinking about material, you know, you, you don't want to waste any money. Your resources might be limited. So it's, so when I was thinking about it, I was thinking like, you know, it's all about, you know, what's necessary for the piece. And, I was curious, especially like how how that idea maybe might inf- influence the way that you th- you think about two D now. I think the process may be similar, but the ideas that drive it are totally different. I think I what I've learned through doing sculpture, I use the reflection of light, and um, in sculpture, an upright is strength, a diagonal is speed, a hole is gives it lightness. Those those kind of formal qualities still apply to painting. And direct how how light hits a painting still is the same as a three D sculpture, but where with sculpture illusion, I have to make the reality of it. With painting, you you can hint at illusion a lot easier than you can with a sculpture. You're dealing with the you know three D surfaces. You can go through it, around it, and in it. You can still make illusion, but that's not the kind of sculpture I used to do, which was abstract sculpture did that precision kind of really like lend itself right away no it was i was in my master's year that i suddenly laughed at myself sending the surfaces of these aluminium supports thinking oh here i am again with wet and dry sandpaper on on these surfaces and i've had to pay you know all the school fees for five years to go back to what i already knew (laughs) i think they're different I, i i think the skills are the same but i think the the drives are totally different. The reason for doing is different. Um, with sculpture, when I chose to, there would be different ways of doing it. If I had a maquette that I'd made, I'd just put it in front of the stone and make what I saw in front of me. It was, I, I could have been, you know, doing it from somebody else. I had no decisions to be made. I'd already made them all in the maquette. Or so other times I'd look at a piece of stone and respond to the stone and try and see what I saw within the stone and like a banana peeling it, I would expose what I saw within it. And other times I totally let the stone dictate everything I did and it was completely open at every step of the process and I'd be in the moment responding to what was needed at that particular time. And I think painting in that way for me is there's similarities there. I respond to what's in front of me and see what's needed and... I, I'm, I try and leave it as open as possible and not head to an objective. I mean, if I knew what the objective was, it would be boring for me. I'd like to find things out as I work. Well, and, and just to kind of clarify too, so when did you kind of make this shift towards, uh, I guess, leaving leaving that, you know, just more of like a sculptural approach to doing 2D and painting? I was mentoring somebody in the Waikato and they were at doing a course up north 
And I could, through the course of over six months while I was mentoring this person in sculpture, I could see their thought processes changing. I could see the way this guy approached problems. Um, Initially, he would have a problem, throw his hands in the air and walk away. Within six months, he was tackling those problems quite differently. And he was excited by those problems. And I could see how the learning was changing him. And I thought after 20 years of doing the same thing, I need to go and do some learning myself. And so I applied for art school and I got accepted within two weeks. So I was really pleased about that. And it was always a dream to go to art school. I just hadn't done it. So it was one of one of the bucket list things I ticked off basically. Um, and it, it's right. It, learning for me is, is one of the major drives that, that excite me about doing art. It, it, it makes me understand the world and my place within it really. And so what was that experience like going back and getting your BFA and just being immersed in that intensive studying of art? Each year was different. The, the, the Bachelor of Fine Arts was a four-year course. And I, honestly, the first year I wondered if I was in the wrong place at the wrong time because I didn't know quite what I was in for. But there were highlights of drawing classes. And when you learn something, you really have to get rid of what you know and you have to be open to challenging what you think is the norm and so it took me as an older student it took me a while to be open to that and in the end I was trying installation and film from my mobile phone um you know anything and everything and it wasn't till the third year at at Elon School of Fine Arts that I actually got a paintbrush in my hand and they they had a class where they taught all the skills that you may need, such as traditional gessoing and stretching watercolor paper and um, uh, encaustic. Um, And I really enjoyed that class and and I felt like I was in art school. And along with all the reading they make you do or ask you to do and the critical studies that you do in the art history, you just, after doing eight hours a day, five days a week, a new level of art and thinking emerges from that. And I really enjoyed being among 120 students in my year and having this kind of collaborative learning through all their eyes as well and having access to a huge library of information and great tutors. It was really good. So even though it changed me and I, you, can't, you can't come out of it the way you were before you came into it, um, I would do it again. It was really good. Being in a drawing class or, you know, kind of being introduced to painting, and is it something that allowed you to kind of work a lot quicker in terms of just exploring, like, what you wanted to do? Because, again, it sounds like, again, hauling rock, again, again, something very labor-intensive. I don't know. It is labor-intensive. Um, when I first started sculpting, if I needed a hole through something, I used to get my partner, Finlay, to dig the hole. And by the end of a few years, he was too slow. I'd grab the chisel hammer off it and do it myself because I was much quicker than he was. So I, if, even if I was sculpting or painting, my first start is my idea and my concept. And then I would get a pencil and draw something. So the process is the same. I get my workbook out and I, I I nut out my ideas first. And after making so many hundreds of sculptures in the end, after I used to draw some drawings, I knew it already in my head. I wouldn't bother making it. So I needed a different avenue and painting allows me a whole new way of thinking and being. So, and drawing does that too. Yeah. I think of those instances where maybe I did uh, installation gosh, like weird sound installations with boxes. <laughs> I had I had these really strange abstractions that I that I paired with these really sentimental eighties songs. 
but like I, I don't know there's like a level of like for me like when I'm when I'm in an environment where I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing and then re- really realize that I don't and that I'm humbled kind of immediately just because <laughs> my like my approach or whatever I was thinking was going to work out just you know just just drops off right right real quick I mean I'm kind of curious, like, I mean, is that something that, that you wind up responding to in terms of like when you're, when you're in, in the process of working through pieces, there are still these moments where you can kind of be very intuitive. I always remember this chat that I saw that divides it into four and I probably won't get it right, but it was something along the lines of, I don't know what I don't know. And I think I, I know what I know and I know what I know. And I, I, you go back to the beginning again, where you're a master of what you know, but if you change what you do, you go back to, I don't know what I don't know sort of thing. And I think whatever you do, you go through these moments where you think it's good. You come back the next day and look at it and you think, Oh, I don't know if it's good. I, it wasn't until I got to master's year where I didn't need a tutor to help me. The rest of the time I kept looking for compliments or assurance from other people. But by the time I got to master's level, I didn't need to ask questions from other people. If they disagreed with what I was doing, it didn't crush me. I just continued on. And sometimes I would totally ignore the tutor for three months because I knew where I was going and I knew where the work was going. So you have to have a certain level of confidence in yourself sometimes that's right sometimes that's wrong but you you got to back yourself I suppose and and just explore what you want to explore whether it's right or wrong I, I need to get what's in my head out and I don't care if it's wrong <laughs> I think it's in fact I think I learn more when it is wrong when it's right it's just right and you what's there to do with it so yeah I like making mistakes. It's just an interesting thing to think about. You know, I, I, I think I've, I've been doing this for the amount of time that I've been doing this, but I mean, it's something to that you can easily kind of forget, you know, and, and I, I don't know, it's something that really wakes me up, you know, in terms of like, how do you, how do you salvage something, you know, when it's not, when it's not working out, it's just such an interesting, I don't know, dilemma. Well, I, you know, I often take a work that I don't think is successful and I completely, use the support for something else or I'd start again or I try and I try and work it there's always one or two pieces in my studio where I'm looking at them thinking I think you're dead and I'm going to have to let you go or I um or sometimes I think no I'm going to try and fight that one and see if I can learn from it and resurrect it so to speak um or can completely use the support in a totally different way and realize I, I've tried too many things on the one piece. Sometimes you try and do 10 works on the one work instead of breaking it up and learning when to stop. You can easily kill something, can't you? I think the biggest thing, is it finished or is it just beginning? It's one of those things that only you can answer. And I guess it's, it's, it's what you want the work to do for yourself. It is for me anyway. I, I don't make work for anybody else. I used to do a lot of commission work when I was sculpting. And for me, that was like, sticking my feet in mud. It was hard. It was, I couldn't move. Uh, I, I felt like I'd sold my soul basically. So I think that's one of the good things about art school. It allowed me the freedom and the space to make art that just interested me. And then you come out the other end and you're faced with, um, it's all, it's about learning. It's about finding things out. And I, I, I don't want to have that infected by anything else other than what I want to infect it with. It's an open process rather than uh, heading to a, a, a specific target sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes perfect sense. 
And so you, were you always working with aluminum and these other 3D materials like, like your current work? My undergraduate um, BFA, I was working acrylic paint on uh, acrylic sort of film, so it was plastic on plastic, and all my tutors were giving me a hard time saying the work looks unresolved and it looked like it was maquettes for larger works. So I had to solve that problem during my master's, and I found aluminium, and I needed something hard and, and, and giving me a resistive so that I could cut on it, I could sand on it, and this this particular sheet stuff is actually used for advertising, but I think it, I, I take it back to the raw source of aluminium, and I, I, I just found it because somebody else was using it for photography, to put photography on, I think, and I just thought, oh, I can use that. Um, and it, it has lots of qualities of print-like qualities or plate-like qualities that I really like and industrial qualities that I like too. And is it something that you can kind of really manipulate in terms of, I mean, obviously being able to cut it, but in terms of the different types of textures that you can put on it? Yeah, I'm using my the same tools that I use for my marble sculpture, my sanding pads from 40 grit to 30,000. I'm using those same sanding, hand sanding pads for sanding these things. Yeah, these aluminium sheets, which come in very, very large sizes or whatever I want them cut it. And so are you normally working on like a bunch of them at the same time or are you working? I work in a series. I, if I, like I've just done these seven or eight works for the show in Wellington and what I'll do next is look at that, those works, think about them and go ahead to the next stage. What's left to be said? What's left to be improved? Are the kind of questions? What do I want to know? That kind of thing. And so... They're all on the same line of inquiry, looking, you know, at the support, looking at the qualities of paint, the materiality and illusion and um, surface and abyss and perception, all those kind of think questions is are what I'm asking myself. We were talking about that that aspect of uh, drawing before. I mean, is, is it something that that they're kind of elaborately planned out? And I'm sorry if I've kind of re-hit that. I just, I wanna, I, I just kind of want to make sure that... Um, that I understand in terms of just how that works. The starting point is the same for these because they're on the same series. I take, um, if you look, they've all got a little edge that, that is kind of tilted on one side, and that's the starting point, and after that it's totally open. Um, having said that, sometimes I look at the one before and copy one element of it but do it slightly different because I want to find out about something. But I haven't got the whole picture in my mind, no. But what is a connecting thread is the kind of questions I'm asking through them about the material, about the surface, about the hierarchies of the elements that I'm using, the paint, the the support, the color, the line, the perspective, color as as backdrop, color as frame, paint as frame, paint as as um, a reflective quality, paint as an abyss. I, I I want to see how all these elements work as, as themselves, and I want to use the support in the same way as I would use the paint. I, I use the support as a drawing tool as much as I do the paint. So uh, sometimes the support is etched or scratched in a line, linear way, and I'm using perspective, and sometimes it's as a backdrop, and sometimes it's as the form. So I try and sort of play around with these hierarchies quite a bit, which which was a response to sort of Donald Judd's idea of trying to make space, color, and materiality visible 
and he got me thinking about how you you see color, but it's always attached to the form. And you can't see color without being part of the form, such as if I'm looking at a box, it's a red box. And how do you see the red without being the box? And how do you see the red without looking at the surface? So that led me to putting yellow behind my paintings. And so some of the works have a yellow glow behind them where you can see yellow halos, but not the color. You can see the color, but not the paint. Um, and so when I, as soon as I did that, it kind of it lifted the support to the surface and I had to have another reason for using the support and I found that quite exciting if the paint's on the back what's on the front so I started playing around with the materiality of the aluminium and the gesture of my sanding is the softness of the work and if you see the works in person a lot of people are quite surprised the softness of the sanding and the the way the light touches it it's quite velvet like in, in places and the works also change as you walk around them. You'll, as you change your perspective and position to the works, the lights and darks will change and things will advance and recede. And these moments where it goes from image to object are, are what I'm quite interested in. It's really interesting in, in thinking about the, the idea of process and the way you're working through it. One of them that I wanted to talk about was Working Space from 2012. It's a small 234-millimeter work. But there's all sorts of stuff going on with the surface in terms of the way that the, the paint looks like it's applied and, and adjusted. And I don't know, could you just talk a little bit about that piece? I like the moment where illusion and materiality kind of merge. And I build up the surface with paint and then I take it away again. I expose some places to be raw aluminium and other places have got painted silver on them. You can't tell in some angles which is which, and then you shift, and then one goes dark and one goes light. And they're quite, they're quite a bit looser than what I'm doing now. They, I think they, those ones had gel in them as well. And in terms of just actually, you know, painting on on the surface of aluminum, you know, use a number of different materials. How does that actually like work? Is it just through the process of sanding that it's able to attach to the surface of it? Do they have to be coated? This is a material that in New Zealand is called dye bond, and it does have different colored surfaces on it. So sometimes I, I take that top surface off completely, and that's when you see the raw aluminium, and I do paint on raw aluminium as well, and I have to use an etch primer first for that. Any, anything can go on top of that as long as it's matching the same quality. So if it's enamel-based, it can go on there. Um, the Sometimes the gray areas are what I sand, and it has a paint on there already, and that's okay as long as it's sanded, fine coating, like we're talking 600 grit. I can paint on top of that as long as it's got tooth to attach to it. If I'm using acrylic, if I'm using oils, it can attach to either the raw enamel or the the painted surface as long as it's got any grease on there. But most of all, I try and find out what works by um, attempting it first and then trying to take it off. And because I'm quite hard on the work, I'm often sanding the paint as much as the surface. So if it's a um, it's diamond polishing pad, so if it's standing up to that, it'll stand up to anything. And sometimes I coat them to protect them at the end and sometimes not because I want them to stay really, really fresh, and there's not much dulling that happens with aluminium, so I quite like that. And if it does oxidize, it's only a small amount, and I quite like the changes that occur that are, that are beyond my control, that they're just naturally part of the material. I was just thinking about it in terms of, like, the, the difference between the the really, really tight 
kind of geometric abstraction yeah. as as opposed to kind of this more these more kind of organic kind of painterly feel almost or at least just the kind of difference between the two. It's funny you should mention that because I lay in bed this morning thinking I feel like being a bit more organic again. I think I've gone as tight as I want to go for a while and I may start attacking them um, and make them looser again or or put the, some kind of soft gesture in there somehow. To me, the softness is the sanding. When you see them, which you can't often see in photographs, the sanding is all done by hand. And even though I've got edges on them, inside those edges is all this hand movement that is very gestural so that often doesn't show up but i think i need to amp that part of the work up a bit more a lot of your your work kind of deals with these very subtle shifts in terms of the space um what, what is there anything that you kind of draw upon or is it like all kind of self-referential abstract language and then you know that continued you know throughout all these different bodies of work how, how does that process work in, in terms of playing around with the different types of shallow space and, and effects that you're going to have in the work? They're not planned. They're found out. But I think once you've done it several times, you know what's going to happen roughly. I'm dealing with subtle shifts and subtle tones because I want to learn what they can do. I don't want to add too much into the work so I, I'm out of control and don't know what I'm doing. If you'd have seen my work in the fourth year, I was using so much color. I look at it now and it just looks like chaos to me. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just wasn't in control of it. It was the tail wagging the dog or whatever they say. By limiting my choices, I feel like I'm understanding exactly what these elements do. I want to see how they function. I want to see how they work against each other. I'm trying to pit them against each other. And trying to understand exactly what does a white shape do against a yellow shape or a gray shape do against a black shape? How do things advance and recede? How do their edges become perspective as well as plane? How can I make them both of those things? How can I uh, shift the perception and and have these moments where it's one thing and the other? And and using light, always using light direction and the way the light hits things. So I think that aspect is really interesting. The the way that as you kind of even describe, I believe in one of your statements, um, just just the way that you know people looking at, at them are going to kind of affect you know what's reflected in certain surfaces and, and the way that yeah. that interacts with the the gray. Ambient light is a big part of the work. It, it's going to be reflecting the yellow behind it, but it's also going to be reflecting the viewer inside the work and the architecture and the colors and. Uh, you know, white can be different in different lights and the same with the silvers and the greys. And often these works looks better in just a, a soft ambient light, which I think I got that idea sort of Robert Ryman's, you know, using everything within the space uh, as being part of the work. And again, like in terms of scale too, are the works that you're currently doing, were they about 400 millimeters square? That's the smallest one and the largest on these ones are 600 millimeters I kept them small because I had to fly them an aeroplane to Wellington, which was um, that you know pretty limited in what I could take. But I do work much bigger, and in fact, I think that's where I'm going heading next is to do much larger works because I want to see how they function in the same way when they come at the body in a more immersive way and open those spaces up a bit more. So, in terms of in terms of that uh, geometry that's in your work, where where does that interest come from? And Malevich square and the reduction of painting was the starting point for me and the reason and another reason I chose square was Frank Stella's um, comments on the neutrality of the square in that it doesn't relate to 
landscape or the individual. It, it's as neutral as you can get. And I like that idea in that it allows the ideas to come forward and not referencing other things. But having said that, I understand as soon as you put something on, something in a room, it's going to reference everything. So I was just trying to find a neutral space where I could understand what the elements do as much as possible by themselves. And in regards to Malevich, the reduction of something to see what it is, basically. Um, how far can you go before it stops being painting and starts being an object? But as I'm putting them, like in Gallery um, 30 upstairs, I, as I was standing there in, the, in their space, it's a beautiful old-fashioned building. It has white walls. It has beautiful windows. And so I think I, um, wherever you put a painting, I'm aware that it's on walls or an object. It's in a room. So... I'm, I'm responding what's, to what's existing already in the material support, the edges, the surfaces, the abyss, the planes, but then also to what's in the room, the walls, the windows, the shadows, the light, the, the turn of things, the corners. And I think as paint is, is the, the third element of paint as illusion and paint as an abyss or a veneer and um, surfaces – and, of course, those things are man-made. So I'm responding to the architecture and the ideas. And I think, lastly, the illusion and perception that happens when you look at things. You know, it makes me wonder, too, then. So, like, in terms of the, you know, the environment, like, if there's natural light versus, you know, maybe gallery light, does that also change the, the way they, they might look in totally different settings? Totally. And I'm quite surprised when I finish them in the studio how they look in different lights at different parts of the day. In bright sunlight, it's quite different to ambient low light and side light and overhead lighting compared to sort of a, a natural glow all around the room. I put the works on a wide support at the back, so I get this huge shadow effect on purpose. So they're quite a, they're about an, in maybe an inch away from the wall, and if they're painted on the back, then I get the glow happening, reflected light bouncing around behind them as well. But if there's nothing behind them other than the support and a shiny surface, then I get the shadow moving around the outside of the the work. And I kind of get this distorted picture plane sort of effect. And I, I play around with the edges of the frame, whether it's um, a geometric sanding or whether it's using paint as frame. I, I like to distort things. I like to change things. And and the shadow is a really big part of that. It makes me wonder if there's a potential to kind of play around with just different lighting situations. Is any anything like that particularly in, interesting? Or yes, yeah, definitely. I haven't. I've I've done things like sometimes I think the work looks better with the lights off, and and the subtleties seem to be stronger in that situation. But I haven't I haven't really gone there yet. I'm still trying to understand these elements that are happening on the work and within the work and the materiality. And I, I don't take too many big steps at once, otherwise I seem to get lost and I can't understand what I've just done when I've added something to the work. So I, I'm in a process, I suppose. So, you know, I'm just trying to understand things. But I was going to ask, um, and maybe this is more apparent in some of, some of that older work, but I was going to say, because you were talking a little bit about sanding, into the paint, and I'm looking at a, a work from I think 2012 called "The Glass It Falls," and there's kind of these. You can I, I I couldn't you know when I was looking at it I couldn't determine if like that was you know like part of the brushwork or if like there were kind of like these flats painted in and then sanded over. So is that kind of representative of what that looks like? 
that's common with all the works, and it just depends on what angle of light and perspective the viewer is looking at it. So that's what I – one picture doesn't really get my work. If you move around it, it's like six works in one, and it comes apart and comes together again as things advance and recede. So even in these recent works, there is sanding like that, but because I've photographed them or whoever's photographed them um, has got them in one point only, you only see one perspective of that. But there is sanding that's quite rough and there's sanding that goes over paint and there's different grits and uh, of sanding so that, that sometimes it's quite fine and that's sometimes there's texture on paint that I've left there on purpose. And I go up to about 3,000 grit on there with diamond, little diamonds on pieces of sandpapers, hand sanding pads that I use for marble services. And sometimes it's just wet and dry sandpaper and it's very, very thin and so it allows my fingertips to show through in the sanding and it's, it's a gestural mark that's like a paintbrush. And other times it's I've laid down paint um, and acrylic polymer in several different layers so that the light bounces through the polymer, hits the surface of the work and comes back out again. And... And sometimes I've frozen wet on wet paintbrush strokes so that I can then sand over them as well afterwards when they're dry. So it's a combination of all those things. And I use masking, of course, and um, different kinds of masking techniques. And you find out the hard way how um, when it goes wrong. And sometimes the things that go wrong are the things I like the most. You bring up something interesting, too, and it makes me wonder – you know, are there are there certain angles where the where the work might might seem like it's executed extremely tight then, and then other angles are like even just kind of walking in? And because I would imagine, like from a from a big distance, it might looked, you know, absolutely kind of pristine. They're not they're not pristine objects when you get close to them, and when you see the sanding and the edges. And I'm comfortable with that because I want to have this handmade look about them. But if you pull back, some of them look tight. These these works that I've done for 30 Upstairs are probably the most tightest I've done. And I don't know why, but I don't want them to be perfect objects. It's more about the ideas to me. It seems like maybe that would be something that would be inviting then for somebody to kind of continually find, you know, something in it, yes. which is which is very interesting to me. I get excited when people are looking at my work and they're actually looking behind the work because of the yellow glow behind and they're just kind of swaying from side to side watching how the work changes from their point of view. And that's a little bit like a sculpture to me when that happens and I, I like that when that happens, you know, that you can activate the work by moving yourself. So tell us a bit about the show that's that's about closed at 30 Upstairs. What was involved there, how many paintings, and, and just give us a lowdown. Um, it's at 30 Upstairs Gallery in Wellington in Courtney Place. It's a non-profit gallery which is owned by a collector, Mel Brow. He's the owner, and the curator is Jana Miller. This space is beautiful. It sort of occupies the space between a non-profit owner-run space, a, a dealer gallery, and an artist-run space. They they have artists and residences there, and they have exhibitions. And I think there's three on right now, uh, Rebecca Ramunson and myself and Anna Maxwell. Uh, there's seven pieces of mine there, six in the one room and one in their office area, which is huge. It's a beautiful old building with wooden floors and doors and windows and high ceilings. 
and natural, beautiful sunlight coming in. The walls are beautiful white, and I wanted to respond to that sort of the whiteness of the space and the shadows and the light and the angles. So I basically kept my palette to the greys, the whites, and a little sort of grey, greeny colour, sort of. They're all square format, different sizes, two at 400 millimetres by 400 millimetres and the rest at 600 by 600. And you'd mentioned earlier that you're you're planning on working a bit larger after this. Is that correct? Well, looking at these works in the space, I I think they're small, and I I want to see what happens when they go larger. Um, and I've been feeling that for some time, so it's not just this space. But because I had to get them there on, on an airplane, you're quite limited to how you pack them and the weight and things like that. So that that dictated my size a bit there too but as of yesterday i'm also in a drawing collective that's an international one which i'm quite excited about because it's not about an end product it's about the process of drawing and learning and there's 11 other people from around the world who who will also be in this project you know from usa canada um netherlands you know everywhere sort of thing it's all drawing and putting our works on this collaborative space and basically sort of helping each other and talking about things and and we'll do this for a year once a month put work up for a year and then at the end of it I don't know if there's going to be an exhibition or not and I I, that doesn't matter to me I think I'm really excited about openly sharing and and thinking about drawing because my work starts with drawing and the ideas so I'm quite happy to be doing that one. Something else I've got coming up is in a place in Newmarket at J.J. Morgan Gallery, and that's a group show. That's that's where there's four other artists, myself, Scott Gardner, James Ford, Raven Turner, and J.J. Morgan is the curator of that. And his title for this show is It Sounds As Though I've Missed Out on a Lot While Standing in the Middle of a Cloud. And my work for that one is quite different. It's more dealing with painter's veneer and, and the space that you go to and the illusion that can happen when you're looking at that. So his is a really exciting space. This is his words. The premise of this show sits in the notion of looking into a sense of being in place and what is involved in the human experience in moment and time and landscape and or the use of local and or applied knowledge that is a sense that requires time, energy and paying attention to realise what we are partaking in and what has passed by us. The attention is to provide a visual and sensory experience by presenting several paintings that look at space and place and a video that looks at moves in space and between us, a smell-based work which it builds on the viewer's sense through scent. And so the piece he's got from mine there, mine is called um, Learning Entails Submission and this, this, I'm trying to talk about the moment where you get lost in a painting, where you get like 0.3 seconds to look at the work and then something else happens. You go internal in yourself and it, it sort of questions what you know and, and it goes inside yourself in perception. That's one thing. And the other thing I've got coming up is at Papakura Art Gallery, um, curated by Tracy Williams, who's the Senior Arts and Culture Program Leader, and A.D. Shearing. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. She's the coordinator at Papakura Art Gallery, and there's going to be two painters, myself and Joe Prisk, and we're going to be responding to ceramic works in in the space as well as two paintings. So I, I think a lot of that is going to happen in curation in, in the conversation when it comes out about through the installation of the works. Um, and I don't know which works are going in that one yet, So, but I'm excited about that one too. So there are all three different kind of things happening. 
Um, those are the three definites. I'm also part of a crit group where 12 or 13 of us get together on a monthly basis and we critique each other's work. So where's the, the best place for everyone to, to kind of keep up to date with, you know, what's coming up and, and the shows that you have? It's funny because I think I become a slave to all the places that I put my work and I think I've got them too many places on the web. My website seems to be the place I, I update the latest, the last rather. So either my Facebook page, my personal one, or my, I have an artist page that I've just started in the last month where I, I'm only putting my art things up and I probably that's the best place to see. Thanks once again for taking the time to speak with me about your work. I really appreciate it and it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for asking me. Thanks again to Diane for joining us. And remember, she's got a lot of shows coming up. If you want to stay up to date with where they're at and what's going on, check out dianescott.net. If you're a new listener and you're curious about my work, you can check it out at davidlinaway.com. I have a bunch of new paintings up there exploring architecture and landscape and place. So please check them all out, davidlinaway.com. As I started this podcast, I want to remind everyone out there, every artist, that we are taking submissions for the 2014 competition. Once again, our juror this year, Richard Holland of the Bad at Sports podcast out of Chicago, which has grown now to be international, covering contemporary art around the globe with over 30 contributors. It's very cool that he is our juror. Once again, he'll be selecting nine different artists, three from three different categories. That's BA, BFA, MA, MFA, and professional artists. Once again, we are going to be hooking up one artist from each of those categories to have a solo exhibition. One will take place at Jan Brandt Gallery, one will take place at the Peoria Art Guild, and another will take place at Demo Project. All spaces in Illinois. So once again, if you want to get your work out there on Studio Break and share it with our audience, you can also have the opportunity to get it in an actual space and exhibit it. So please apply. And of course, if you know any students or any artists that would be interested in applying, please let them know about this opportunity. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to check out all the other ones on studiobreak.com. Again, each of those have images of the artist's work, links to their websites. You can access all of the old ones through the archive feature and go month by month. Just look on the left sidebar. It's super easy. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can do that in iTunes. So please do that. You can also leave us comments there. It would be very helpful for people that like listening to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. You can follow us in a number of different places. Our Facebook page is a great way to stay up to date, so please like it. You can follow us on Tumblr, that's studio-break.tumblr. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break. So please reach out in those venues. One last reminder to check out SkylarMail.net. He has a new website up and provides all the music on Studio Break. He is a painter and multimedia artist. Great new website, so please check it out, SkylarMail.net. You've now reached the end of the episode. We thank you once again for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.